0: Welcome to Building Optimal Radio. I'm Jared Gossett, owner and president of Gossett & Company in Austin. We build higher-end, custom, and spec homes, and this is a podcast to help fellow builders build a better business, learning not only from my victories and losses along the way, but also from some of the sharpest minds in the industry. (music) I had the opportunity to join the Lowe's Pro Council Ambassador Program. To break that down for you, that basically means we are helping provide feedback and ideas to Lowe's executives. And we're also spreading the word about Lowe's programs that are specifically designed for pros. Now, my personal philosophy on brand partnerships is this. I will only work with a company if I already use and believe in their product or service. And in this case, I've been a customer and a fan of Lowe's for years. I've actually always preferred to shop there. So I'm excited to announce this partnership and in the coming months, I'll be sharing more about what Lowe's is doing to help pros. And as always, thank y'all for supporting our podcast and our community of builders. So we're here with Austin Miller, and uh, Austin, first, thanks for coming on the show. I'm pretty excited to hear something that's a peek into a completely different universe from what I'm used to today. So thanks for coming on.
1: Oh, thank you very much for having me, Jared. It's uh, been listening to the show since it started, and, and I, I love what you do, and, and you've had some amazing guests, so I feel privileged to uh, join uh, join the list of guests you've had.
0: Well, you're kind of um, an inaugural episode in a sense. I mean, everything is usually geared around building tactics and strategies and things like that. And today we're talking about your experience in the remote Arctic and what it's like to build up there. So it's, you know, for our audience, very few people have an idea of what that's like. So it'll be just kind of, it is educational, but in another sense, more kind of uh, seeing the way that things go in, in a completely different part of the world. So let's start with your background, because I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to know how an Aussie ends up in the remote parts of Canada. So can you walk us through the events that led you from there to where you are now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, in a nutshell, Australian, uh, born uh, in Sydney, uh, grew up in the capital city of Australia, Canberra, and um, I uh, went straight from school to university. And and for a while there, I was studying um, a finance um marketing degree and I ended up completing that but halfway through my degree I realized that I wasn't really wanting to sit at a desk uh, which ironically is what I do now but um, I went and took up carpentry um, and uh, I did a carpentry apprenticeship Uh, at that point I was studying in Melbourne so I I built um, custom high-end homes and um, we did everything from digging the hole to fitting the doorknobs right at the end and It was a really great apprenticeship, and then um, once I'd finished my apprenticeship and my studies, I I, um, had been dabbling in um, the ski instructing world with um, you know some holidays here and there where I'd I'd go overseas, and I did a couple of seasons working as a ski instructor in Japan, a couple in Australia. Um, We do have some ski resorts in Australia, which I know some people always kind of do a double take of, but um, yeah, it it led me to Canada. Yeah, yeah, it's not um, it's not all that glorious, but it's snow and it's fun. So uh, I learned to ski in Australia, and then um, yeah, I I I guess I was doing pretty all right at it because I um, I finished my degree and and my apprenticeship, and I thought you know before I uh, settle down and buy a house or really get serious and maybe start my own business, I want to go overseas and do sort of a final um, hurrah of you know having a fun ski season and meeting people and. You know, it is a, a really fun life when, when you're young. And, um, yeah, I came over to Canada. I had a job as um, a ski school director for a ski school in um, Banff, Alberta. And uh, the story goes, I, I met a girl. Um, she's a dual citizen Canadian in English. Um, so even herself, she's got a, a mixed accent there. But anyway, we, we um, fell in love and I uh, hung around and the snow disappeared. And I thought, geez, what am I going to do now? And uh, I fell back to carpentry. So I um, started working for a builder in, in Banff and I was there for a couple of years and and things were going really well. But I was uh, getting more and more involved in the management side of, of the projects we were doing. And uh, eventually I sort of became an unofficial project manager, if you want to call it that, and um, did a bit of work on the tools and, and off the tools, a lot of estimating, a lot of managing the jobs at one point, I think the company had 15 guys. So I was sort of overseeing a lot of the multiple jobs we ran and Banff is a beautiful place. I don't know if you've ever been, but um, it's also a very expensive place to live. So we were, um, uh, my, my girlfriend, now wife, uh, but uh, my girlfriend at the time and I were sort of looking a little further afar to sort of see where we could maybe go and put down some roots and, and have a little bit more of an affordable lifestyle. And I, uh, Funnily enough, I was looking at some jobs out towards Calgary. Um, I mean, that's two hours from Banff. And um, I reached out to a few recruiters and there was a recruiter um, for a big uh, sort of multinational or um, global recruiter, shall we say, who was from my hometown and uh, being uh, an Aussie, he sort of uh, took me under his wing and he tried to find me a good job and I uh, had no experience with um commercial construction really at that stage uh let alone building in the arctic and um he managed to uh, get me an interview with the company i work for now and uh they build in the canadian arctic so that is um the three northern provinces of canada yukon northwest territories and Nunavut. and in uh, august 2018 i started my career um, building in the arctic so that's uh, you know, short version of how I got to be building in the Arctic. Um, I am based in the Calgary area. I do fly up north a couple of times a year, but uh, primarily um, the project management side of the business is done remotely. It's not really done on site um, and, you know, I manage multiple sites across the Canadian Arctic. So it's easy to do that from one central office and uh, Yeah.
0: It's always interesting to hear people's stories, especially people who are adventurers like you you are. And uh, I think there's something in in that Australian blood, man. I've never met an Australian I haven't liked, but you guys have this philosophy on life and this adventurous spirit, and you just strike out and somehow end up with the coolest experiences. And here you are now building up and almost all the way up to Santa Claus and uh yeah. the far north the far north are pretty pretty impressive yeah. how far by the way your projects how far would they be from the i guess you call the north pole all the way up at to the top i mean are you it's still a pretty good distance to get that far up correct
1: yeah it is so uh, my most northern project at the moment is in a community called pond inlet none of it it's um, at uh, approximately 72 degrees um, north so it's um, it's up there the Arctic Circle is uh, just trying to find the stat here I think it's uh, about 800 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle so the Arctic Circle is defined as uh, basically part of the world where they will have at least one day with no sunrise, or no sunset you know so in the winter they have a full day of darkness and in the summer they have a full day of sun so that that obviously moves the arctic circle but uh, yeah it's um it's pretty north yeah 72 degrees north uh, 644 kilometers or 400 miles north of the arctic circle is um where i'm currently working at the uh, most northern part and uh you know, to, to kind of put that into context in terms of, uh, you know, Santa Claus and the North Pole, uh, there's only a couple of months of the year where it's above zero, you know, and it, it, the highest it will sort of get is um, 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius um, for a couple of days a year. I think this year they only even had one day that sort of reached that double-digit um, degrees Celsius. But, um, yeah, you've got, a, you've got a sort of four-, five-month window that's um, – pretty cold and um, either lengthening days or shortening days. And, and the days change time in terms of when the sun sets or sun rises quite fast up there. It's very noticeable from day to day. Um, you know, it could be upwards of sort of seven minutes different every day um, in both directions. And then come the winter, you know, the lowest temperature ever recorded in Nunavut was uh, minus 72 Fahrenheit or minus 57.8 uh, 57.8 and that's um, that's ambient so that doesn't factor in wind chill and uh, the coldest I've experienced was minus 61 Celsius or minus 88 Fahrenheit and that included a wind chill and that was um, actually below the Arctic Circle in a community still in Nunavut called Baker Lake and that if you took the east and west north and south most furthest points of Canada and where those dissected pretty much baker lake is in the center of canada so you know canada is a very big country when you start to look north of the uh, southern states and and southern cities and there's a lot of lot of land north that is uninhabited yeah well that was my
0: next question so from your northernmost builds right now mm-hmm. are there many zones that are habited north of that or are you guys really kind of at the top of the world from a humanity perspective
1: There's two towns that are inhabited uh, towns, call it, um, further north, not that much further north, maybe 100, 150 miles further north. They're on the other side of the Northwest Passage, Grease Fjord and Resolute Bay are the names of those two towns. They're pretty small communities. And then north of that, there's a a Canadian military base, uh, really north, like I think it looked 88 or 89 degrees north, uh, right at the tip of Canada. Um, but that is a military base, so it's not inhabited by any civilians. So, um, you know, Pond Inlet I think has a population of around 1,200 people. So it's it's a small community, but in the sense of communities in in Nunavut, is probably on the larger side because you've got some communities that only have a couple hundred people. Nunavut, if we focus on that, it has a population of around 40,000 people and has 26 or 25 communities. None of them have a land link to the south. So none of them are accessible by road or rail. They're only fly in with uh, airports or in the summer months when the ocean isn't frozen, there is uh, a ship or two that will come and deliver basically one year's worth of supplies for that entire community so that can be fuel, non-perishable items, construction material, you name it.
0: Well, and talking about life up there a little bit, just so people have a point of reference. I mean, in a previous conversation, you told me something about how, like, if you're pregnant or if you have some sort of injury or illness, they have, what is it, planes or helicopters that will periodically fly you down to the nearest hospital, which is a flight, Way Like there's, there's nothing in your town. There's no getting in the car and driving somewhere. Is that correct?
1: That is, yeah, for the most part, correct. They have medical clinics in each community, but they have very limited medical facilities. Um, you know, they, pregnancies, I think for the m- most part, most people are flown South um, to uh, Southern cities like Ottawa, Winnipeg, um, Edmonton, And they or Yellowknife in Northwest Territories is a pretty major city north of the southern states. But um, most major medical procedures or emergencies, people will need to be flown out. So, yeah, it it definitely adds an element to when you're up there. You know, obviously safety is important no matter where you work. But if you slip and fall and and you, you know, break your back or if you, you know, have a heart attack or something like that, there is very little up there that is going to, you know, keep you comfortable or safe, uh, you, you're usually getting on a plane. And, and it's not a short flight either. So for me to get to Pond Inlet, it's a three-and-a-half-hour flight sort of thing up to um, the capital of Nunavut, Iqaluit. And then uh, you've got a layover and you're on a sort of two-and-a-half, another three-hour flight. Depends because the flights, um, once you get out of Iqaluit, we call them the milk run because you might – take off and then land in, in three different communities before you eventually get off um, the plane. It's a bit like a, a bus route. You know, you stay, stay in your seat, people get on and off at one community, and then it flies to the next and a few people get on and off. And then eventually when you get to your community, you, uh, you hop off. So uh, depending on, on the routing, you know, it can take you another three and a half hours to get up there. So really it's a full day of flying you'll be leaving Ottawa in the morning, around 9am and, and you could be getting into pond inlet around 6pm that night. Um, so it's, it's quite a long way to travel and it's very remote. I think I mentioned to you, you know, the, the pond inlet is um, probably more, if you were to think of the Arctic, I don't know what the image you have, probably, you know, flat icebergs and just, just white, you know, barren flat landscape, but uh, pond inlet's got quite a few mountains and glaciers and fjords. Um, it's quite, Picturesque in that respect, but that's again we're talking about such a large area. It um, you go to another community, it is flat and barren. And another community I work in is called Joe Haven, and that's um, right on the Northwest Passage, and it's the closest community to where the um, infamous Franklin expedition sort of met its end. Those ships were only discovered, I think, in in 2014 or 2017. I can't remember, but. When you get off the plane there, even in summer, you you realise just how desolate and remote the place is. Like there are no landmarks. There's weather coming from you, uh, coming to you from every direction. The the coastline is jagged and very confusing. It's um yeah it's an extremely remote place. And uh, that's in summer. When you go up there in winter, with the weather and and the temperature, you realise that you would not survive very long um, if you got lost and and it's very easy to get lost even in town sometimes because the the weather rolls in the fog is thick or the wind kicks up and and the snow is blowing and you you just can't see so it's a extremely hostile environment you know nothing grows up there Um, there's maybe a bit of grass and the odd wildflower in, in summer but there's no trees there's no bushes and you know very little wildlife so it's it's amazing to think Ah, uh, people survived up there, you know, long before Western settlement. Because yeah, it's a very, very hard place to live.
0: And right now, it's primarily a native population up there, correct?
1: Yeah. So I think uh, currently the population in the last statistics sort of had around eighty percent of the population, or eighty-five percent. Sorry, were Inuit. So that's the local Aboriginal population. So yeah, it's um. It's uh, predominantly uh, everyone up there that does work. They work in the government. So the government employs sort of 60% of everyone that works up there. You know, it's it's um, it's a very different way of life. Um, you know, when I talk about these communities, they're nothing like you or I would sort of be familiar with in terms of um, other Canadian cities or, for that matter, American cities, Um Obviously, the environment makes for, for a different feel, but uh, the communities are very much just a couple of houses plonked in, in the middle of nowhere, a school, um, one or two grocery stores, some sort of uh, power you know, generating station, a muni- municipal building that has your snow clearing and heavy equipment to maintain roads, and, and that's about it. There's really um, no roads anywhere. Uh, the towns are very much uh, insulated, yeah, it is a very unique thing to see. I feel very lucky to um, have spent quite a bit of time up there and visited quite a few different communities. Because um, even the cost of getting to some of these communities, if you were to just pay for an airfare to go up there, it could be upwards of you know five, 000, six thousand dollars Canadian to to have a return ticket to get to some of these communities. It's it's not a cheap place to travel to.
0: Yeah, well, and it's like what we were talking about in a earlier conversation. I mean, it sounds like a, a fascinating place to see and experience, but it's so remote and there's so little to do there that 99% of us are never going to see it in our lives, which is part of the reason why I was so fascinated to talking to you and hearing about this other part of the planet and then, you know, specifically how construction happens up there. And I think that mm-hmm. could be a good segue for us to talk about the construction. Uh, And Mm. what what it's like up there. So, you know, I I imagine that there have to be months every year where it's just almost dark all day long and just no construction is happening or progressing. But walk us through a little bit what it's like to build up there.
1: Yeah. So again, it um, it differs in the province, uh, Northwest Territories, um, a lot of communities in the winter months have ice roads. So I don't know if you've ever seen the, uh, the show Ice Road Truckers. Um, <laughs> I've seen the advertisements. I think, yeah, I think I, I've never really watched it, but I think a lot of the roads they drive on are sort of Northern Manitoba. So they're, significantly further south than some of the ice roads in Northwest Territories. And then in the summer months, a lot of the communities are linked by roads, dirt roads and and ferries that cross the rivers. So Northwest Territories is, in uh, respect to access and construction, a little easier because it's a little bit more connected. But again, if you go to the extreme, which is Nunavut, there are no road connections, there are no rail connections. So these communities, as I mentioned, get one or two ships a year And uh, they're big ships and they they bring everything in for the year that's non-perishable. So, you know, the communities will still get fresh groceries and milk and all that sort of stuff brought in uh, by air almost every week or every couple of times a week. But in terms of construction, you know, you've got a very different method. So when you're building in the Arctic, you're obviously in the permafrost. So that is where the ground is frozen year round with global warming. Um, that is definitely making the permafrost shrink and some of the more southern communities are suffering with um, the effects of that. But majority of buildings are built on piles. So they're steel piles that are basically jammed into the ground um, until they hit bedrock or or further enough down that they engineering-wise can support the structure above. Then you've got a, a bit of an air gap from, from ground to uh, the underside of the building, and then you, you build off the piles. Construction methods um, are still um, remarkably like the south. And, um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, surely prefab or modular units would be the way to go up there. And, and um, yeah, everyone thinks it. Uh, but as I mentioned before, there's not a lot economically up there to do. There's not a lot of employment. so built into our contracts is uh, stipulations that we must employ local labour to construct these projects. And, and, you know, some projects it's up to 40% of our total labour spend must be local hires. So if we went modular or prefab, we're never going to meet those contractual requirements. So we still stick frame and build a lot of the buildings as you would down south. But then with all of the remoteness and and the very small window of good uh, construction weather, uh, it leaves you with not much of a window to get a building built. So you are right that um, there are months where you might not be constructing. So take, for example, the two projects I'm on now. We were awarded them in April, May 2020. We then procured them, and they were shipped in July and August. So the ship, typically for Nunavut, leaves Montreal in the Quebec area. The ship then several, travels up north for a couple of months, and it makes quite a few stops in these communities. And um, for both the communities I'm working in currently, the ship got there in early September. So it, it you know it took a month for it to arrive, and then. By the time we had pulled everything off the ship and and sort of taken everything to uh, sites, laid it all down, you know, the snow was already falling. It was mid-September. The weather was turning. So basically what we do is we bundle all the material up, we put some construction fencing around it, and we leave it for the winter. And it sits in the snow, in the weather, and we came back to it in May, June of this year um, the sun comes up a lot sooner than that. But um, in one community, the material was 20 feet under snow. It was just so heavily wind uh, wow. wind loaded and, and snow drifts. It was it was crazy. So we just had to wait for the snow to melt. So we didn't really get a lot of our material until late June, July, by which point it is summer up there and you've got 24 hours of sun. But there's so much snow that it needs to melt before we can get to it. And then we started constructing. So, you know, we, we build our A floor structure and then your walls and then your your trusses go on, build your roof, and then you start to close in the envelope. And, uh, you know, that on the projects I'm building, I'm building um, multi-residential housing. It is government-funded and subsidised housing. So it's um, rented to the local population at a discounted rate. There are five plexes, so there's five dwellings in each building with a mechanical room sort of in the centre of the building could think of them as a single story they're quite long they're 120 to 130 feet long by about 40 feet deep it varies on the the number of bedrooms in each unit there's a few different models but uh yeah we've been building those since June July and uh we're only just starting we got them weather tight in probably August in terms of the roof was on and the external um Weather barrier and membranes was on, but um, we're still finishing up siding in some of these communities. So some of the guys are still hammering on siding and it's minus 20 degrees Celsius uh, up there plus wind. So it, it becomes a real rush to try and get these buildings closed in and, and uh, power and heat turned on by this time of year so that you can continue to build inside the units. If you don't get there, then you sort of again leave the building as rugged up and, and wrapped up as you can, and then you come back to it the next summer. So these projects can take years. The projects I'm on now, we're going to continue to work through winter because we have gotten to the stage where the exterior work will be done by the worst of the winter, and we probably still won't finish them until May next year. So from award to completion, you know, for a simple uh, five dwelling unit, uh, single story timber frame, it's it's not too complex um, it's still going to take two years to, to complete it and uh, yeah it, it's it's a challenge right that's
0: unbelievable had, because yeah. I would imagine that your company and your bosses are probably all over you guys to try to get them dried right in to where you can move to interior work before the season ends because it's just that ends up logistically dragging the project out so much longer when you got to just you got to stop Throw up your hands and yeah. wait for another nine months for stuff to
1: yeah, come back. A- absolutely, build the
0: weather.
1: absolutely. Um, there is so much logistically that you need to be on top of, and I mean, just to to go back on the shipping, right? So when we're awarded the project, you have a sometimes two month, if you're lucky, eight week window. Um, sometimes it's down to six to four weeks window to buy everything you need for one year of construction, if not more, and get it on the boat. And, and if you think of a typical construction project, you know, okay, I'm doing, you know, my framing package. You get your framing pack package delivered and that's all that you have on site. And then you move to whatever's next, your roof, your siding, your insulation, your drywall, and and you, you stage it so that you don't have everything arrive at once. We don't have that luxury. Everything has to arrive at once. Otherwise, um, you know, if you're running out of material and you need, you know, say you've short a couple of sheets of plywood and you need those to keep building, the only other option you have is to fly it in. And um, air freight is not cheap at the the best of times, but, you know, I mentioned how much it costs for one person to fly up there. So uh, as an example, you know, one half-inch sheet of plywood would be you know maybe 40 pounds with the air freight costs that one sheet of plywood would would then cost you 200 to 800 dollars by the time it got up there and that that air freight rate varies depending on the communities obviously the further north you go the more remote you go uh, the more expensive but you could be paying upwards of 20 dollars a pound um, that's expensive even
0: today (laughs) yeah unbelievable (laughs)
1: Yeah. So, yeah. And well, so it's another thing, just these recent projects, you know, we bid them in February, March, 2020, we were awarded them in April, May, and we're procuring them in June. So, you know, there's a lot of project risk there just in in material inflation prices. And, um, you know, these projects were always going to take two years or two shipping seasons. So there were some things like millwork and things like that, that we don't procure until the second season, because there's no point having that sit in the bush for a year potential risk to damage but then we're buying millwork packages you know year year and a half after award and um you know with the recent economy that has obviously been a massive financial risk or project risk to some of these projects so yeah everything becomes more difficult up there yeah
0: and, and you guys are doing government projects so tell me i don't want to ask you something that's proprietary information but i presume since they're government contracts they have to be like maximum bid, kind of fixed, fixed bid contracts. Um, Absolutely, going into. Yeah. It. Oh my god!
1: I, public I, so open I, I, tenders, lowest <laughs> bid wins. Um, and and so the you know even though I'm building housing, um, they're built as commercial projects. So uh, even in that procurement window that I have, I can't just go start buying things. I need to pull shop drawings, submit them to the consultant and client team. They have to review them. They take one to two weeks. They come back and they say, this is approved, this isn't, resubmit. Uh, so you're caught in an absolute nightmare of paperwork because you're doing shop drawings and uh, tech data sheets, specification sheets, for everything you buy down to the hinges. Um, <laughs> and uh, you're submitting it and you're getting it approved. And then once it's approved, you can purchase it. So then you've got an even smaller window to get it purchased and You know, I mentioned that we leave the material in the bush, maybe under the snow for a year. The material doesn't get shipped up, just, you know, bundled like it would be delivered on most sites. It needs to be crated and packaged for sea freight. So most of this material then needs to go to a yard. It needs to be um, properly done It needs to be enclosed. Um, In the case of drywall and finished material, we need to make the crate weather tight. And then um, it gets sort of slapped together in a very sort of uh, traditional looking crate gets numbered and then it gets sent to a dock and then it goes on a ship and, and it goes up. So when you're at the other end receiving the material um, you could have, you know, two, three football fields worth of material that you are suddenly starting to try and sort through, but it's not identifiable because it's all bundled within crates or sea cans. And um you know, as is so often the way with uh, maybe the, the frantic nature of just trying to make these insanely tight timelines, not everything's packed in the um, the best logical order, right? You know, there's been times where your framing package um, or your floor package might need some structural bolts and you go, okay, where are these bolts? And you're looking for a bag of bolts in a football, two or three football fields worth of material okay. and you're going through a five, 600 page uh, manifest of material, trying to find what crate it's in. Then you get a crate number and then you've got to go find the crate and then you've got to open the crate and you've got to dig around and, and find this bag of bolts. So everything takes time. And uh, there is so much planning and thought that needs to go into it. Otherwise the, the jobs can go off the rails very, very quickly uh, financially. You know, it's, it's not cheap to fire people in. It's not cheap to pay people to work up there. And it's not cheap to house them up there. And so every hour you work, you need to be efficient. That You're fighting an obstacle or a challenge pretty much every direction you turn.
0: You know, yeah. what this reminds me of that this niche specialized building that you do. It reminds me of what I normally tell people, which is that construction is largely a commodity industry with low barriers to entry that's one of the things we always have to struggle against you can have multiple entrants in a market and uh and that can put pressure on on margins there are ways to separate yourself and differentiate yourself but i'm always interested in learning about the guys that can create a specialty in the business because usually whenever you can carve out a niche or specialty you you've got uh you got a more of an economic moat around you mm. in case, you what you're dealing with from my outsider's perspective is a tremendous amount of risk obviously you guys know how to measure it but i mean you're talking about projects that might take a year to build or you might miss the season it could be two or three you've got like over a year pre-construction timeline mm. <laughs> like what you said you miss one thing and it's a two hundred dollar door hinge that you gotta send up on a flight mm. you've got this labor, which I actually want to talk about this in a second, but so you've got labor that you've got to hire. That sounds like, you know, they may not necessarily be be skilled. Uh, some I'm guessing are and some maybe not. So you factor all that in and uh, it's a tremendous amount of risk, but you guys have it figured out and dialed in so much that you've got an opportunity as a company. And, and there are other home builders and construction companies that I've come across that have similar models and for instance one is builder of lighthouses up in the great lakes and apparently this is he is the guy that builds lighthouses and that's the kind of guy that can go charge a really good margin on his product so anyway, mm. i don't mean to derail us with my nah. my random monologues but man what a uh, cool impressive operation that you guys have well, let's talk about before we wrap this up that labor because that's just really interesting to me that you have to have 40 you percent know, you hire local population i mean what sort of say do you have over that i imagine you probably don't have the skill that you need am i right
1: yeah and look it varies contract to contract 40 percent is at the high end you know there's some where it's 20 and um, the two projects i'm working on with the housing it's 30 percent and um yeah it it is a challenge look on any construction project there is more than enough you want to call it incidental sort of labor something that is not really requiring high skill like i mean just based on where we're building the r value of our assemblies is um quite significantly higher than your southern construction so there's a lot of layers of insulation and installing insulation, you know, it needs to be done right. But that is something that uh, more often than not, the the local population are very good at, very capable at, and uh, we can get them on that. And there are, with all the projects, there are some more capable hands than others. But it, it is a challenge sometimes to meet those requirements um, because you are more and more so in the last, you know, five years. These projects are starting to get very complex. Um, they're they're still timber, stick frame homes, but the systems, the membranes, the details go into them. They are becoming more and more complex. And that's partly due to the fact that for a long time they were building homes like you would down south um, here in southern Canada. And that didn't work up there. Your climate is so extreme. And, you know, the the buildings, um, they have a huge mould issue emerging mould issue up north. They've got a lot of old buildings that weren't built well or um, were built, you know, with the right intention. But as I'm sure has been discussed many a times, if you have one penetration or one fault in your air barrier, um, that can breed mould. And in those climates where you have such an extreme in temperature differences, where you're talking, you know, it can be minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit outside and, you know, 60, 70 degrees Fahrenheit inside, you're talking up to a hundred Fahrenheit difference between, you know, maybe a 12 inch um, envelope and that can breed problems very quickly. And, you know, some of the buildings aren't maintained very well. In fact, a lot of them are that comes down to, again, the ability to maintain buildings in that environment, they get punished. Um, They don't have a long lifespan. So, yeah, it is a challenge finding and and utilizing that labor. But there is a lot of work when you think about it. You can use um, labor for um, you know just a general laborer, keeping sites clean, you know, running or clearing snow, um, getting equipment ready. And and the Inuit are very capable people. I mean, you you can't live up there unless you're capable. <laughs> Um, they can turn their hands to many things and they're they're very friendly wonderful people really so it's a it's a fact of building up there on these government projects you know it's it's you don't really have a say you make it work and um, at the end of the day it benefits the local communities because we're spending a lot of money there we're employing people and, and that money allows them to you know buy vehicles or snowmobiles or whatever it is, a boat for, for fishing in the summer and, and live their lifestyle and, and continue their traditions. Um, so, yeah, it, it, the labour force is, is a tricky one because obviously we then have our southern labour force and they don't live up there, so they're fly-in, fly-out workers. You know, a, a typical shift for a carpenter or electrician or whoever it might be is six weeks. Um, they'll fly up and they'll work for six weeks. They work seven hour, um, seven days a week, up to 10 hours a day. So by the end of that six weeks, they are absolutely exhausted. But they work big weeks, you know, 70 hour weeks, six uh, six to seven weeks straight. And then they'll come and out. You provide, and have, with,
0: you provide them with just temporary housing?
1: Yeah, Wall we care? rent housing. Um, that's another thing that is stipulated in our contracts. We can't send in um, like camp housing like you might imagine or mine would have we have to rent and purchase accommodations from the community so um, Inuit owned or Inuit operated accommodations and um, so we stay at hotels and whatnot but you know like when you factor in travel accommodation and and food and everything like that you could be looking to you know up to about 20 percent of your contract cost is just going on travel accommodation and uh, you know other things that aren't necessarily directed at the building activity itself you know it's just a overhead that you have to encompass in in your contracts so yeah it's um you know and then finding people that want to work up there right like i myself and i think we're just talking about before we started recording here you know i've got a young family as to you so you're not going to get many people that necessarily want to be away from their family for six weeks. So, and, and it's an emerging thing, I think the world over, but, you know, the skills shortage is getting worse and worse. So, you know, people are getting paid pretty good money down South to, to build homes and come home to their families every night. So that's another cost pressure that, you know, we're not necessarily getting uh, rewarded for, you know, cause we did these projects before COVID before, you know, some of these economic pressures were, a reality so you know the, the risk and i know you mentioned you know we've got to have it dialed and, and for the most part we do but in no different to most contractors we have our jobs that go wrong and the uh the, the pressure there becomes well you know stop the bleed you know it's sort of like you you've got to <laughs> you've got to apply the first aid you've got to you've got to really hammer down on the project and and stop it from bleeding because once a project runs away on you and you, you have issues, um, be it, you know, you, you could have a, a beam package for your floor that arrives and uh, they incorrectly shipped one or two beams, too short. What do you do? You know, you, you've got a crew of 15, 20 guys, maybe cost you, you know, upwards of 40, 50 grand a week just to keep them there. And they're sitting around waiting for a beam. You know, it, 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 you've got to be very quick to realise where things are going to cost you money. And, and how do you overcome that? What can you work on? You know, how do you make things work? And uh, yeah, you've, you've got to be a problem solver. Absolutely. And you, you've got to work very quickly. Otherwise these projects can run away on you very, very quickly. And, and, you know, margins have come down and down and down in, again, the probably the last decade, because it's competitive bid, it's lowest price wins. And uh, it, it I, you know, I think everyone probably in the industry um, from the GC side agrees that ultimately is not good in the long run. You have people that cut corners. You have um, maybe less skilled workers because the higher skilled workers are being paid more elsewhere. You know, and and you have more stress and pressure, and sometimes the execution of the projects. Ultimately, the people that pay for that and and the results of that could be. Uh, the government or the end user, they're not getting as good a product as if they didn't take the lowest bid price. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of things and you could talk about it for hours, um, but uh, the crux of it is it's a, it's a very complicated machine. It's very hard. Uh, it's a lot of stress. It's a lot of work, um, but it is also very rewarding. Um, you, you know, you, let say you're building housing for uh, the native population and, you know, and, and put into context, some of these natives hadn't seen uh, Western people until the 1950s. So, you know, for the most part now they're, they're settled, they live in these communities and it's you know, the generations that live now, they're familiar with Western culture and everything like that, but it wasn't that long ago that these people were very much living their life as their ancestors did and uh, were not disturbed and, and they they kept to themselves but it's often the way with recent history that obviously settlement and uh, western influences had negative and positive impacts but you know that's again i'm not too qualified to talk about that not being in york myself but um it is still very rewarding to go up there and meet these people learn about their cultures learn about their histories and and you know give them a job and and give them a home to live in at the end of the day yeah it's it's a Challenging place, for sure.
0: Keep up the great work, man. It's exciting to see what you're doing and it's exciting to hear your story. And I just appreciate you coming on the show and sharing another uh, another way of building, another way of life with us.
1: Yeah, no, thank you, Jared. I appreciate the opportunity and hopefully for the listeners, they it uh, makes them think, um, you know, even takeaway for your Southern contractor, your traditional home builder, there are always efficiencies to be found. There are always ways to make things more profitable. Um, it can take a lot of work up front, a lot of brain power. But, um, you know, building these projects is a lot of data analysis. It's a lot of financial analysis and looking at where you're losing money, making money, where you could be better. Um, because if you didn't do that, it wouldn't be possible. You would go out of business after one project. You know, there's this, like you say, there's so much risk where we build, it makes you go over everything with a fine tooth comb. And I know for me, if in the future I was building a traditional home in a, in a southern city, there's definitely a lot of things that I would look at differently compared to before I worked up in the Arctic in terms of, you know, where there are opportunities, where there are risks, and how you mitigate them best and, and how you potentially increase your margins or reduce the risk. You know, it's not always about trying to make the biggest margin possible, but it's trying to do a good job and, and make a decent living at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. i Amen to that. And, and I think just to expand on it, you guys don't have the luxury of choosing whether or not to be really deliberate with your pre-construction process. You guys live or die with it. And a lot of builders, we tend to be sloppy with our pre-construction process and, uh, Maybe this will serve as uh, an interesting look inside for some people to realize that there is a tremendous amount of value. We do have opportunity to do it. My company did a 180 with the profitability on our projects once we started doing very in-depth pre-construction planning. Not to the extent Mm -hmm. you guys do it, but maybe not too far away. And I think that that's the best way to run run your business, and uh, it's one of the things that I'm always trying to convey to our community here is to do the same thing: take your time and plan up front.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And look, if you can look after the business side of construction, and that's the finance, it's procurement, it's the the logistics, then I've found that the the tradesman, the craftsman side of it comes a lot easier because you you can once you know once you plan and execute at the beginning and you have all of that understood and, and you can look at numbers and you can identify problems, it makes the ability to sort of understand the problems, solve them and move on, one, easier. But two, if you've done all that, then you can just focus on the work. And and I think, you know, in previous jobs, previous life, you know, sometimes that gets muddled up mid-construction and, and it can sort of be a distractor and, and, and maybe even a big bigger derailment from the success of the project. You know, it's uh, it's definitely been a big eye-opener for me that pre-construction, you know, is, is the way to go. Um, I think I've got a fortune cookie uh, message uh, sticky taped on my desk, on my whiteboard, and I think it said, a job well begun is half done. And uh, something like that is not lost on me. You know, you, you couldn't say it better, and especially where we begin, you know, um, or sorry, where we build if we don't begin well we will certainly not end well um and that's the nature of where we are
0: well that is a great piece of wisdom to end on man thank you for uh thank you for your time austin and um again thanks for coming on
1: likewise thank you jared thank you so much for having me mate